Hey, I'm Steve. We're going to talk about some stuff today, and I'm here with Nick, our sound engineer and producer. And the topic we're going to talk about today is what does the word save mean, and what what does that have to do with us? But Nick was kind of singing a, a song about being saved. Nick, Nick, just give me a few few lines of that. What is saved? Jesus, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. No more. Yeah, that's about it. That's about it. But uh, do we have the copyright to do that? Are we going to get in trouble? Um, I don't think we do, but then again, because, who has copyright anyways? Because you don't sound anything like the person who sounds that. Yeah, I know. I sound yeah. way worse. So no, it's no, fine. No. You They'll sound better. Be. You sound better. Hey, sometimes I get this question about uh, once in a while people, well, what does it mean to be saved? And and I think it's a good question. And one of the key verses in the Bible about that is, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves is a gift of God. So this whole saved thing is a, is a free gift. And I think that's that's awesome. So this word saved in the Old Testament is found 812 times. I got it right here in my notes. I looked it up the other day. 812 times the word saved is used with about 15 different Hebrew words. So all I'm going to make the point is that out of those 812 times, only a handful of times is it being saved from hell. It's usually being saved from something else. Like uh, David says, I want to be saved from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. And he just wants to be physically saved, like, I don't want to die. And that's frequently used in the Old Testament, you know, even in the prayers, Lord, save me. And usually it's save me from my enemies, like being physically killed. It's also being used in things like um, being saved from drowning. You know, so it can be that kind of flavor, too. So it means to, in the sense, be rescued from a undesirable result. Drowning is an undesirable result, right? We could say going to hell is an undesirable result. Yeah, I get it. But most of the time in the Old Testament, it's about our our physical lives uh, that, that we get saved. And once in a while, talking about future salvation, we'll talk about that in the New Testament. But when you get to the New Testament, uh, there are ways that the word saved is used as as well. And, and one of them is that you can be you can be there's salvation of a wife. It's really a weird verse about childbirth, but and no one knows exactly what that means. But there's there's salvation from drowning. Paul talks about in the Acts, I was saved from drowning when the ship got wrecked. And so in the New Testament, this word saved is used about 150 times. And only about 40% of the time is it used to being saved from hell. So I encourage people, every time you see the word saved in the New Testament, hit the pause button in your head and just think, are we talking about being physically saved from something or are we talking about being saved from from hell? Is this a spiritual kind of salvation or is this a salvation from something physical that's going on around me? As well, sometimes this word "saved" can mean uh, happiness or or wholeness of life. It's a condition, my well-being, in other words. So that's still a physical thing, my my personal well-being when it comes to salvation. So I just encourage people to hit that pause button because if you don't, you might infuse meaning to it that was never intended, and that meaning could be like. Uh, uh, it could be good works or something I have to do to be in good graces with God. But the verse is not talking about God. It's talking about being saved from something else.
So the other word in that thing, in that Ephesians 2, 8, whereby grace you've been saved through faith, is the word faith and or believe. So I don't know if you knew this, Nick, but every time in the New Testament you see the word faith, it's a noun. And every time you see the word believe, it's a verb. Did you know that? That would, that would make sense, just analyzing the language that is being used. Yes. Just thinking about it, yeah. So, And the word, the Greek word is pistuo, it's a verb, and then pistis is the noun. And the word is found about 200 times in the New Testament. And interestingly enough, half of them are found in the Gospel of John. And they're always a verb, so it's always believe. And over and over again, the phrase is believe in me, believe on Jesus Christ. And it's really pointed that belief has an object. I'm going to believe in something as well. So this term believe in the New Testament can can mean to be persuaded that something is true, confident in something. Sometimes it's used in this sense, believing a promise. We find that with Abraham in the Old Testament. So Abraham was promised by God to have land and, uh, and uh, be a great nation and be blessed and have children at the age of 100. It's crazy, isn't it? Children at 100. But it was a promise made by God, and the Bible says he believed that to be true. So he believed what God told him. Pretty simple. I believe in what God told me. Once in a while, Nick, somebody will be sitting right where you are here because we're in my office right now, and they'll say to me, I'm just not sure about, about my salvation, I, and they have doubts. So I will flip open a Bible and turn to John, a passage in John, and I'll say, well, Jesus said this, if you believe in me, you pass from death to life. Do you believe in Jesus? And we clarify who Jesus is and all that kind of stuff, and and – and if they have doubts, I ask this question, well, did Jesus just lie to you? And nobody's going to say Jesus is a liar, at least the ones that come into my office, right? Other people out there might, but well, he said this, so why don't you take him at his word? That would be believing something to be true. And it seems like to me in our culture, sometimes we equate belief with wish. I just wish I would win the lottery. Well, actually, I do wish I'd win the lottery. You wish you I'd have to buy a ticket. Have you ever bought a lottery ticket? Yes, I have. Oh, you have? It it didn't go well. It didn't you didn't win? No, that's that's why I'm employed here right now, actually, and not <laughs> off in the Bahamas for the rest of my life. Okay, well. You know, you wished, right? But did you really believe you're gonna win? You're hoping you'd win, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between hope and believe or wishing and believing and and I think it's really important when we talk to people or think this faith thing through that what we're actually doing is we're believing in what God has told us. I believe that to be true. I'm convinced it's true. I'm convicted that it's true. I'm depending upon it to be true. Once in a while, Nick, I'll ask people, what are you depending upon to get to heaven? And somebody might say, well, I had a young lady once she was in her early 20s. She goes, well, my parents went to church, and, and I think I'm good to go. <laughs> really, you're laughing, but that's that's actually what she said. It's almost like it's hereditary, that, that, kind of, that kind of thing. I'm depending upon my parents' faith, or I'm depending upon going to church, or here's the one, and I'm depending – I haven't murdered anybody, 
So I'm good to go. So my good outweighs my bad kind of mentality. I'm depending upon that I'm that my good is on the scales and I outweigh the bad. So I'm in a parking lot one time late at night. I'm talking to this guy and and we're having this kind of spiritual discussion and he said to me, Well, Pastor, I haven't murdered anybody, so I think I'm good to go. And I said, Well, that's you know, so we tried to have a discussion about that. He 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 didn't buy into what I was talking about, but but I realized then that that um, that for that person, you know, belief wasn't even what he was depending upon to get to heaven was his good works. That's what I'm trying to say. So we have this word believe in as the I'm going to say it this way: the only condition to get to heaven is believing in Jesus Christ. But I like to define believing so that nobody thinks it's hoping or wishing or something that it's not. And when we do that, then I think it's helpful for people that we communicate to because we're not asking them to do 12 things. We're ask, we're having them think about one thing. That is uh, what we talked about last time, the gospel. Who is Jesus? What did he he do and then what is my response well do i have to have 13 steps to get to jesus well over and over again in john it seems like it's simply believe so in john 20 31 john the apostle wrote but these are written to you that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name so the entire purpose uh, the gospel of John was to point people to believing in Jesus. It's the entire purpose. That's the purpose statement. It's at the end of the book. And so I'm just making the point that that we can add to it even um, that we're unaware that we're, well, we're making it confusing for people when we think about the gospel, when we think about faith, and that we can be adding to the, to the situation. Once in a while, Nick, I get asked about, well, where does repentance fit in all this? And and I would call, in my thinking, I think repentance is a precursor to believing. So what does that mean? Precursor. That means something that happens beforehand. So if you think about it this way, do I have to repent? Stop. Do I have to stop doing all of my bad habits to go to heaven? I, Nick, I'm not going to ask you right now what your bad habits are, but if you can, if you can just think through somebody, say, "Oh, you have to, you have to stop doing those things," because sometimes we present repentance that way. You have to stop being bad, and nobody can do that, right? No, nobody can, on their own anyway, stop stop sinning. And years ago, I was when I was a little more aggressive talking to people. I was knocking on doors with this organization. And the guy, and nobody was home. We were going to go over this little booklet with them and so forth. And I turned around, walked off the front step, and then the owner of the house is walking up, or the person living there. And I begin to engage him in a conversation. Like, he's like, hey, what do you guys want? You know? And I said, well, we're here to just hand out some information to people about the church down the street. And, and I said, would you like to look at some of it? And he actually said, yes. Today, nobody would even entertain that. And as we began to go through it, he goes, I can never do that. I said, well, what do you mean? 
And he said, well, I smoke and I drink. And he held up his – the only – he had a paper sack. It's like right out of the movies with a bottle of wine in it. He goes, I drink too much and I smoke all the time. And and I could never do that. You, you know. And I said to him, well, I think I said this. You know, those are issues we can talk about later. The issue is what are you going to do with Jesus right now? Because I know if somebody's an alcoholic or addicted to something that they're not going to stop right away, right? They need the power of the Holy Spirit to help with all that. So you got to start with you you've got to start with faith along the way. So I think repentance then, so I'm trying to say means a change of mind. That's what the word literally means. In the first sermon ever preached in the New Testament, it was by the Apostle Peter at the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, Acts chapter one, and Acts chapter two. And so he he goes uh, starts preaching, and he's talking to a bunch of Jewish people on front of the Temple Mount. There's a bunch of stairs there, and he says about five times, "You crucified this Jesus." And it's really personal because they were the ones who did right. That's the same crowd who was yelling, "Crucify him!" You rejected him. You know that he's the Messiah. You saw his miracles. And then he says, you need to repent. Well, it makes sense in that context that the repentance is a change of mind. Change your mind that Jesus is actually the Savior, actually the Messiah. Makes perfect sense. So I think if we see it as a precursor or something that happens before faith, because actually we're asking people to change their thinking about Jesus, and then that change of thinking leads to faith. That's what I'm saying. Sometimes we use the word repentance as to turn away from your sins, and it actually is used that way in the Bible. Often in the Old Testament, the prophets would tell kings or the people of Israel, hey, you got to change your ways. And if you don't change your ways, judgment is coming. That is the theme of the minor prophets. And often he told them, hey, you need to stop. You need to change how you treat uh, poor people. You need to change how you treat the oppressed. You need to change this or that. This needs to be, have a 180 done to it. So that's the word repentance often in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's used of change of thinking. But when we get to the New Testament, both are found predominantly. And here's the thing. I think this whole change your behavior kind of thing is often addressed to people who are already Christians. It's telling Christians, hey, that's not right. But to the unbeliever, we're saying, hey, change your thinking. We're not talking about changing your behavior at this point. So I think that's helpful when we uh, think about grace, salvation, and faith, that when we're talking to people, I, I don't expect the drug addict to stop taking drugs right away right and i'm not saying hey in order to be saved you got to stop you got to stop whatever that is so where i'm a pastor here at grace community fellowship uh, over the years we've had people who i'll just say it, who are strippers and one of them prayed to receive christ at our easter service do i expect that the next day she's not stripping anymore no i don't have that ex- I don't have that expectation. Uh, I have that hope. I have that hope. Or do I say to her, you know what? You can't be a Christian until you stop stripping. 
would be like me saying, hey, to a dad, hey, it's, it's a sin that you don't treat your wife very well. That's a sin. And until you stop doing that, you can never go to heaven. You can never be a Christian. So sometimes we backload things and say, or we front load things, hey, until you stop all this stuff, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. So I think it's important that we understand what repentance is and that we understand what faith is and we understand what this word saved is. So in that significant verse, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, this, not of yourselves. The this refers back to the whole package deal. Grace, faith, salvation doesn't come from us because it's a free gift from God. One of the examples that uh, I often use, and I don't have any money with me, Nick, and it wouldn't work with you because you know me too well. If I said, hey, Nick, I have 100 bucks for you, and I hand it out my hand, and uh, you would take it because I know you, but but a lot of people won't take it, right? They're, they're squeamish about it. Well, I have to do something to earn it back. You know, God's given me this free gift. I, I have to earn it back. And so we can climb back on the ladder of trying to earn it back, and we call that legalism. And it's a critical cycle that we get locked up into trying to perform our way to have a relationship with God. What happens is, in a lot of people that I talk to, it leads to incredible frustration because they feel like they, they um, have been saved, but they can't seem to get traction on a consistent spiritual growth, and they're trying to perfect themselves by their own good works. In other words, they're trying to earn it back, and that just, that just doesn't work as well. So, for by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. So, there's a very focus in there. By grace, by faith, that you are saved. And then the very next verse, verse 10, says that you were – the purpose of all this is that you would have good works. And the term there, that you would um, walk in good works, is a masterpiece, a poem. It's the idea that what God started in my life – this very instant of trusting Jesus, that he wants to he wants to see that blossom and grow, and he's prepared things for us to do, and that gives me meaning and purpose. So one person in life might be passionate about about missions in another country. Another person might be passionate about the Eugene mission, and another person might be passionate about racial disunity, and another person might be passionate about something else. And I kind of have this little theory that we can't be passionate about all the – we can't be passionate about everything and that people naturally drift to certain things that they're passionate about. And that's great. That's, that's awesome. But God created us so that we have a purpose in our lives after we get saved, and that simply is to walk in the good works that he has for us. And that's where good works come into the mix of things. Good works are part of my spiritual growth. They're not part of my – getting into heaven as well. And when we mix those two things up, we will be frustrated, and the people that we talk to about salvation will be confused, and they will begin to think that all I need to do is... They will think all I need to do is go to church, tithe, get baptized, say the right prayer, and that's not the point at all. Mm -hmm. It's not the point at all. 
sometimes I get criticized by people say you need to have uh, you need to have an altar call. You can't get saved unless you walk down the aisle. My response to that is is altar calls were not popular until 150 years ago. No one ever done them. It's brand new over the last 2,000 years because you can get saved with your eyes wide open. Just look on a Sunday morning. Let's say you can have your eyes wide open and go, I believe that. That I get it now. You know, they've had a change, they've had a had a change of heart, which I think is a great definition of repentance. Repentance, I have a change of heart, and they believed in Jesus. So walking down the aisle, it can be a useful tool, but it's not mandatory or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was wondering if I could butt in. Yeah. I just kind of wanted to restate some of the things that you said. But just say them in the way that I kind of understand them. Maybe this will help some people. Yeah. Because you did a great, very in-depth job. I just kind of wanted to recap maybe a little bit. So in talking about the idea of salvation and then where does repentance fit into that, Mm -hmm. I was just kind of thinking when it comes down to the idea of salvation, a lot of people who maybe aren't saved or are maybe just approach it as like, here's the minimum. This is what you need to do. You just need to believe in God and you're saved. But thinking beyond that or just thinking about what that actually means, if you're choosing to believe in Jesus, that means that you're accepting that he not only is God incarnate, that there's the three in one, but also that he came to die for your sins and that you have salvation because of that. Mm -hmm. So in the act of believing, you are acknowledging that you're a broken person, that you're a sinner and that you need that forgiveness. Yeah. So with the idea of repentance, that's just kind of something that should come along with believing that is if you feel convicted of your own sins and that you have belief in Jesus coming to die, then repentance should just come from that. And then kind of further along the lines that you were talking about, um, like doing good works, how that's kind of a fruit of having that faith. I would just say that salvation and having faith in Jesus should be transformative. It should be something that Mm -hmm. changes you. So does anyone expect themselves to become perfect or for Christianity to mean that you become a perfect person with no sin? Of course not, because when you think about it, the entire population of heaven is just sinners and that's just the reality of it. And so no one, I wouldn't say that as a Christian, I would expect someone coming to faith to just completely do a 180 or immediately drop all their sins. But you do expect that um, change in their hearts to translate into their lives as well, like you were saying. I think it's a great point. So one of the things that I think about, and I'm glad you brought this up, is that is that I don't want to get in the judgment game where I'm judging how much transformation proves anything in a person's life. So, let me give you an example. So um, somebody might say, well, they're not a Christian because they're still doing whatever, bad things, bad habits. And my response is, well, maybe they're not. Maybe they are. I I don't know that for sure. It's not my place to judge because maybe some internal things are changing and I can't see that, that transformation in that person. You you know, maybe their attitudes have changed and they're still in process. And I think one of the things that the church, and I'm not talking about our church where I'm at, but churches in general have sometimes drop the ball in telling, explaining to people that once they trust Christ, there are responsibilities. And I think it's kind of important because 
those responsibilities need to be just part of the normal Christian life, right? It just needs to be be taught, and we call that discipleship. So, helping people be intentional about what happens next, mm-hmm. I sometimes that ball gets dropped. Yeah, and I yeah. think there's kind of a beauty in the story you were telling earlier of the guy saying, "Ah, well, I can't do that. You know, I drink too much, I smoke, and that's almost." more honorable to God than having the faith and using that and feeling convicted of your sin to the point where you just try and hide all of it and come across as perfect. Yeah. I think it's refreshing to see authenticity. (laughs) Exactly. Hey, I smoke and I drink. Are you telling me I have to give that up? (laughs) You know, that's what he, that's what he was asking, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's almost easier for people without faith to come forward and be vulnerable in that way than it is for me to come forward because I don't want to feel shame mm-hmm. because even though none of us expect to be perfect, we all kind of have that built into us in a way by following Christ is the attitude of, Oh, well I need to kind of project myself as perfect or live out this way and just do, do things in a way that paints me in a certain light. But honestly, Jesus would have wanted us to be more vulnerable and just be open about the things that we suck in and the things that are tough to admit because that kind of brings that fellowship and that community to the church. Yeah. Sometimes I tell people, hey, we're all losers. And and I get some flack for that. I mean, I get flack for that. And the, the flack has been you're denigrating my self-esteem. And that's not why I'm saying that. I'm saying that because we are losers. We're all in the same boat together. In fact, we're sinners is what I'm trying to get at. I'm just trying to say it in a different way that connect with people. So if you feel like you came to church and you've, oh, those people, Nick, he's got it together. He's 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 graduated from college and he's living the dream and Nick's life is perfect. And we, But in fact, all of us who are at church, we're all losers. <laughs> None of us are perfect, right? And we need to be authentic and real about that. Amen. Yeah. We're just uh, one blind beggar trying to help the other one find some bread. You know, that that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's enough for stuff uh, this week. And grace and peace be with all of you.